You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know uh, much about me, uh, fun random fact, I am Greek. Uh, not just a little Greek, not like 132nd Greek. I'm half Greek. I'm first generation American, actually, on my mom's side. She was born in Greece. I'm the first one to be born uh, here in your wonderful country. Uh, and... Um, and, and, and really, like Greek, Greek, uh, like we grew up, my grandma lived uh, with us in our house. She didn't speak English. She hated the Turks. That whole thing happened. Like, like when we watch my big fat Greek wedding, it's not funny. It's like, that was Saturday. You know, that, that's, that's how that movie feels for us. So I'm, I'm Greek. And uh, that being said, as, as entrenched as I was in sort of Greek culture and life growing up, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty lousy Greek. Um, I'm pretty bad. Like, like my mom, my whole life spoke Greek constantly to relatives. And when we went to the Greek Orthodox Church as a kid, that's, that's what she, I, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. The only thing I know in Greek is this phrase my mom used to say uh, to me a lot when uh, I was a kid. She would say, uh, which sounds uh, so charming. And so when I got older, I, I asked her, hey, what, what was that thing you always used to say to me? She said, oh, that, that means um, I want to boil you in an old iron pot. That, what, what mom says that? A Greek mom, okay? So I don't speak it, I don't speak it. And, and the, the most shameful thing about my Greekdom not really being uh, profound in me is I can't cook. I, I can cook, but I can't cook Greek, right? And, uh, and man, that makes me sad because I love Greek food. Anybody had Greek food in here? Yeah. And man, the, the, and the desserts, y'all, right? I see you. The desserts, like, like, Kuloraikia, Finikia, Baklava, Kurumbiedis, Galatoburiko. I don't even know what I'm saying, but it sounds so good. And it, and it is so good. And I can't cook any of it. I can't bake. Um, until a few years ago, when uh, we were celebrating Easter, my parents came to visit and my mom came down and decided she was gonna show me the ropes when it came to baking Greek cookies. And uh, so this woman came beside me and, and showed me all of her techniques from when she was a little kid growing up on the little island of Samos, like what, what her mom would do when she was rolling the dough, how you'd get it just right, football shaped in your hand, not, not the span of your hand, but a little smaller so that it doesn't expand too much in the oven. And then you dip it in this, um, like it's a, it's a honey orange glaze, but you don't leave it in there too long because if you pull it out, it actually crumbles and, and the temperature in the oven needs to be just right. And when you're peeling the the Filo dough, you don't want to peel it too fast because it's really brittle. It's, it's one of the finest doughs out there. And I'm learning all these techniques, things you could never really pick up in a cookbook. I'm, I'm beside this woman, this woman watching her navigate this really complicated recipe and, and be able to make these really wonderful desserts. And so by the end of it, I'm, I'm looking at a table covered in like over 150 of the best cookies you've ever had in your life. And what we did was we ended up bagging each of them in little baggies. And that Saturday, uh, before um, Easter Sunday service, we went door to door in our neighborhood to our neighbors and we handed out uh, these little Greek cookies. 
and I gotta tell you, it was amazing us doing that. It opened up the door for so many wonderful conversations. In fact, one of our neighbors uh, ended up uh, through the process of that whole thing, coming to faith in Jesus. She became a member at Stonegate. She, she's here this morning. Like, how awesome is that? That like, that was the result of this. And so what happened was somebody with more wisdom and experience than me came alongside me and, and showed me how to do something that I couldn't do. And the result was many people were blessed in the process. And you see, that's, that's exactly what we're gonna be doing this morning. We're gonna, we're gonna allow the Apostle Paul to come alongside us, someone with far more wisdom than ex, and, and experience than us. And he's gonna show us the ropes. And what he's gonna show us this morning is how he prays. And we're gonna watch this veteran saint navigate prayer, why he prays, how he prays, what he prays. And, and we're gonna learn from him with the hopeful result that we will grow into a, a more robust prayer life for others and the, the people will be blessed around us. That's what we wanna see happen this morning. And so that's where we're moving in this text. We're in just, it's just eight or so verses, uh, three through 11. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see how Paul prays. Then he's going to show us why he prays and then what he prays. That's the movement of the text this morning. How he prays. Like what should the posture of your prayer life be? What should the the mood, the flavor, the, the quality of your prayers be like? We're gonna see that in Paul. We're gonna see why he prays. Like what types of things should drive us to our knees before God? What are those things that should push us into a prayerful space? And then, and then what he prays. Like what do we need to prioritize as Christians who are praying for other people? What are the things that we need to highly esteem and value? We're gonna see that in this text as Paul is showing us here. So let's start with how he prays the mood and the posture here that Paul has. Look with me at verse three. And as we're looking at it, I want you to be listening for some key words and ideas that are gonna come up here. Uh, Verse three and four says this, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. So that's how he starts his prayer. And just what a wonderful way to open a letter, isn't it? Like, dear Philippians, I thank God for you. I love that. That's, that's his posture here. It, now, that sentence that we just read, um, it does read a little wonky, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's translated from the Greek to English and, and, and uh, it can be easy to miss what Paul's wanting to convey. But did you kind of sense when I read that, like what immediately comes up here? What is that sort of repeating theme? Did you see it? It's, it's that idea of like always, all. You see that? Uh, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now, why is he saying it? Why is, it, why is he saying it like that? Well, it's the same reason that you and I would say that to somebody that we loved. We, we are trying to communicate to them how often they are on our mind right? I mean, this is, this is every boys to men song that's ever been written, right? <laughs> Baby, I can't stop thinking about you, right? You know, it's, it's on our, our mind. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, listen, when I remember you, I thank God for you. And that happens all the time. That happens 
all the time, Philippians. Like what a sweet way for Paul to start this letter here. This is a very, very relational letter. It's one of Paul's most relational letters, in fact. You're gonna constantly see over these next few months, Paul's fondness for the Philippian church. Uh, Rodney said it last week. This is kind of his favorite church. These are his people. Like he loves these guys in a really profound way and it keeps coming up over and over in the text. And so, okay, we're, we're, we're trying to put some words around the, the mood, the how, the posture of Paul's prayer here. And one word that we see right away is that oftenness, that alwaysness. There's an oftenness to Paul's prayer life which should challenge us. But it goes further than that. It's not just often, there's a thankfulness there too, right? I thank God in all my remembrance of you. So there's an oftenness and a thankfulness. And then one more thing pops up here in verse four. Look at verse four with me. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. 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 Paul takes the time here to let the saints know, hey, the the mood of my prayer when I pray for you, the mood is often and it's thankful and it's joyful when I think about you. It's joyful. And so what do we do right now? Well, we collect all that data, right? When we're trying to figure out the how of his prayer life. We collect all that data and we conclude this. Paul's prayer life for the Philippians is rich with feeling. It's rich with feeling. You see that, it's, you see that in the text right here. There is a deep heartfelt feeling for these people. Well, how deep does that go? Well, Paul tells us how deep it goes. Look at verse eight, a little bit further down the page. Look at what he says about them. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I want us to slow down over this sentence because there's some gold here for us if we can see it. I want you to zoom in with me on this word affection. Uh, That word affection in the Greek is this word splagnon, which kind of sounds gross, right? It's it's a kind of gross sounding word and and it should sound gross because the word splagnon in the Greek literally translates to intestines, right, right? (laughs) Or bowels, which is super weird. Right? Uh, There's a Hebrew sort of cognate uh, here too. Like, so the the New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament is written by and large in in Hebrew. And uh, in the Hebrew, there's sort of like a a similar thing going on with with the, uh, if someone was talking about their love or their compassion that they would have for someone, the word that they would use to describe that uh, is uh, this word rachamim. Say that with me. It's a good word, rachamim. Yeah, you gotta get the, we need to spit this morning. It's a good word. Rachamim, and and this word literally translates to womb or wombs, right? So when when a Hebrew person is looking at another Hebrew and, and trying to communicate to them the compassion and the love that they feel for them, they would say something like, my womb is warm for you. Don't ever say that to anyone. <laughs> ever. Under any circumstance, really. But they did. They said that. Now, why, why would you say that incredibly weird sentence? 
what is Paul talking about here? We'll, we'll just think about this for a minute. Uh, when I say the word womb, what do you think of? What's the, what are the first things that come to your mind? You think of a baby. You think of a mom and her baby, right? And so, so listen to what's behind this in, in the Hebrew. As they're looking at someone and they're trying to communicate their compassion for them, what they're really saying is this, the, the feelings I feel toward you the, the, the love and the compassion I have toward you is what a mom has for her newborn baby. That's what they're saying in there when they say rachamim. And what, what are you saying when you say splagnon, intestines, bowels? What is that about? It's, it, it would be the equivalent of us looking at somebody and saying, man, from the depths of who I am, I love you. Like from the bottom of, from my gut, man, I love you. That's what, that's what he's saying here. He's saying from the deepest places of who I am, like a mother cares for her child. That's how I feel about you, Philippians. This is Paul in this letter. This is how he is constantly throughout this book. Paul was a really deep feeler. He loved this church. You guys get a sense of that, right? He loves this church. And this should tell us something about us and our posture in prayer and our posture toward people. This, this should tell us about what we're called to. And let me say it like this. The Christian life is not just deep thinking. It is deep thinking. No, nobody believes that more than me. It's deep thinking. Let's go hard in a text, but it's not just deep thinking. The Christian life is deep feeling as well. Do you see that? It, how sad would it be if like Sunday after Sunday, you just, you come here and we're singing these big, rich, theologically robust songs about Jesus and the gospel and we're hearing the word unpacked and the nuances of the text and the beauty of the gospel displayed and all the while Sunday after Sunday, our eyes are dry. Can I tell you, like this text is telling us that would be weird. That would be unchristian is what it would be. Christians don't just think deeply. We do that, but we feel deeply. Felt love for God and for people is really one of the things it means to truly know God. I love, uh, Rodney told me about his interview process uh, when he's interviewing uh, new staff members uh, to come on board at Stonegate. One of the last questions he asks them in, in this process is always this question. Hey, uh, tell me this. When was the last time you cried over your salvation? Isn't that a great question? Like not to shame them or make them feel weird or anything, but like really like we... We want to have people who are caring for this flock here at Stonegate that aren't just brainiacs, the people who feel deeply for you, people who are grateful for the work of God in their life. That's a great question to ask ourselves. When was the last time that like, I cried over the fact that I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see, like, when was the last time that brought you to tears? What a, what a great question this morning. Like, is that, when I say that and you hear that, is that an accurate description of your walk with Jesus? Is that an accurate description of your life with him? Or is there, is there a lopsidedness to you? Are, are you all head 
but no heart. Maybe for some of us this morning, the thing that needs to be repented of is, is being okay with having a mind for God, but not a heart that feels for God. Like that would be a totally appropriate thing to be repenting of this morning as we continue in worship and in singing songs later. Like that would make a lot of sense. And, and, and maybe for you, you just need to ask him this morning for the grace to feel deeply for him. I'm not saying let's chase emotionalism. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there is a component to the Christian life that is felt and not just thought about. And it can be really easy for people who are all about the scriptures and all about good theology to miss that. And I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to miss that. Okay, so, so far we've gotten to see the mood of Paul as he prays for these Christians in Philippi. It's constant, right? It's thankful, it's joyful, there's affection there. That's the mood behind his prayer. And the natural next question is, why? Why is that the case? How did you get to there? How did you get to that sort of heart posture? What's driving Paul to his knees for the Philippians? Well, Paul tells us uh, right here in the text. Look at uh, verse five with me. So verse four, he says, I make my prayer with, with joy. And then verse five says this, it gives us the reason. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Why, why is Paul joyfully thanking God for this church? It says it, because they have partnered with him in the gospel. They have partnered with Paul in the gospel. That is what really moves Paul's heart here. He has found a group of people that are partnering with him in the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Like partnering with you in the gospel. What, what, what does that word partner entail? It's actually a little bit more of a familiar word to some of us uh, in the Greek. It's this word uh, koinonia, which you probably heard before. And it appears mostly as the word fellowship, right? We fellowship with one another, right? And um, I, want, I want us to get a sense of what this word has packed into it. Because if we can get that, it's gonna unlock virtually the whole book of Philippians for you. Uh, one commentator said this about the book of Philippians. The theme of the epistle is partnership in the gospel. The theme. Everything in this letter, he says, deals with that subject in some way. So it's super important that we figure out what Paul's after when he uses this word here, partner in, koinonia in the gospel. And, and uh, if I could give you a really simple summary definition, it would be this. This would be the thing to hold on to. When you're thinking of the word koinonia, partnering, you should think this. It's sharing in a common purpose. In its simplest form, it's that. It's, it's linking arms about a common purpose or or goal or vision or aim. It's sharing in a common purpose. And immediately you get the sense that there's a lot more baked into this word than how we mean it when we say words like fellowship, right? Like when we talk about fellowship, what we mean is I went and saw Black Panther last Friday with my buddies and they were all Christians, right? And I get it, Wakanda forever, but I'm just saying that's not, that's not biblical fellowship, 
that's just seeing a cool movie. And it's not donuts and coffee in the lobby in your fellowship hall either, right? That, that's cool. I'm pro donuts. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying, let's, let's use the right words to describe the right things. And for the Bible, fellowship has a lot more going on there than just hanging out and being buddies. There's a lot more baked into it. There's a purposefulness in it. Koinonia is sharing in a common purpose, joining with others in a common aim. And in this case, in the case of scripture, that aim is the work of Christ. Joining in on what Jesus is up to in the world. Joining in on the sufferings of Jesus. Joining in on the ministry of Jesus in the world. This is what it means to actually partner in the gospel. Essentially what you're saying is, my life is about seeing the mission of Jesus come to fruition on this earth. And I'm willing to link arms with Jesus Christ and with my fellow saints to see that happen. That's what koinonia is. And that's what Paul is so excited about in this text. I found a group of people who can get behind the gospel like that. Well, how were they doing that? Well, Paul's gonna tell us all throughout this letter and we'll see this over the next months, all the different ways that they were partnering with Paul in the gospel. But here's just a, a, a glimpse of them in the book of Philippians. Verse seven says that they shared with him in his imprisonment and his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 19 says that they were the people who were praying for him and his needs. Chapter four says they were one of the only churches consistently sending him aid and financial support and supplies. Chapter two says they were involved, uh, they, they involved some of their own members in Paul's care. They actually at some point sent one of the members of their congregation, Epaphroditus, to Paul in Rome in prison to care for him and to bring him aid. And, and Paul will tell us later on in this book that Epaphroditus almost lost his life in carrying out this mission. Like there were things on the line for the church of Philippi as they were koinoniaing or partnering with Paul in the gospel. And Paul is looking at this and, and he's just elated that this is happening. This is what it means to partner. And by the way, it would be worth saying at this point, this is, this is one of the heartbeats of Stonegate. This is why Stonegate cares so much about church planting. Um, some of you are new here, but some of you have been here for a while. And, and if you've been here for a while, you know very well, like we care about being a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches. In eight and a half years, we have helped be a part of 22 church plants. Isn't that amazing? Like, praise God for that. Like that's, that's saying is something about what this church leadership is saying is valuable. And what's valuable is joining together with others to get the gospel promoted to a lost and dying world. That's what we're about. That's why we have a, a worship residency program where we're raising up worship leaders so that we can equip them so that they could be sent out into the world to help plant churches. That's why we have a, a, a pastoral residency program, church planting residency. We planted Casey Maddox, we planted Brad, we planted Valentine. We are about seeing the gospel replicated and replicated and replicated in community after community. That's what it means to partner in the gospel. And Paul is seeing this in this church and he's saying, yes, my people, I found my people. You guys get it. You are about the most important thing in the universe, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus told to the whole world. Yes to that. And then 
right in the middle of this accounting for why he's praying for them, he interjects a sentence that I I want us to spend some time on. Because if you're just reading this in passing and and, and, uh, you're just doing a study of this, it's gonna strike you as weird uh, and out of place at best. And at worst, it's gonna feel really counterintuitive. Like why would Paul, in trying to make his case to the Philippians about why he's praying for him, why put this sentence there? Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at it together. Uh, so verse four said, he, he, I, I make my prayer with joy. He's telling him uh, the type of praying he's praying. It's a joyful praying. Verse five, why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So that's why. And he's continuing his thought. And I'm sure of this or being sure of this. What? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What he just said is is this. Philippians, I see God working in you. I see the good that is being produced in you. I see a heart for Jesus and I see that extending out from your heart to your hands. You're doing something about it. And I'm acknowledging it was good God that put that in you. He has done a good work in you, but he doesn't just stop there. He goes further because then he says, it wasn't just God who put that in you. It is God who's going to see that seed of goodness grow up into a tree, an oak of goodness in your life. God has not just planted the seed. He's gonna carry that through till it is a tree or maybe to say it a different way, God didn't just cause you to start the race of faith, he's gonna pick you up and carry you over the finish line too. That's what Paul's saying here. You see that? Now that's great, but why say this here? Like why put it here? You're trying to give them a reason for why you keep pleading with God on their behalf. And your reason is essentially because God's already gonna take care of it. Do you see how it feels counterintuitive? It would be like me saying to you, hey, I'm gonna ask my dad to give you $10,000. And the reason I'm gonna ask him to give you $10,000 is because yesterday he put $10,000 in your bank account. Then why are you asking him, right? It's it. I'll just go spend the money. It's there. And that's what we're, I wanna say that to Paul. I'm like, Paul, if, if God's already guaranteed their holiness, if he already is guaranteed that we're gonna make it to the end, then why are you praying so hard for them? Why, why just let it happen, bro? It's gonna happen anyways, right? That's what it makes us feel. I don't want us to miss this. So please listen close. Remember, please, Paul right now, what is he doing? Paul is giving them reasons for his prayer. He's giving them reasons for his prayer. But listen, he's not just giving them reasons for why he prays for them. He's giving them reasons for why he can have joy when he prays for them. Do you see that those are two different things? He's trying to give them a sense of why I'm praying for you in the first place. And then he's also trying to give them a sense of why can I have a deep joy when I pray? What's producing that? Let me try to explain it like this. Um, 
Suppose that you've enlisted in the army and you're fighting in a war, right? A war is going on, it's a world war, it's a big war and you're fighting in this war as a soldier on the front and, uh, and suppose somehow you got wind of the fact that this war has really already been won right? The victory's been secured. There's been some decisions made. Some strategic things have happened such that you have complete confidence now that, that this, this war is, is done. The victory is yours. Your team has won. If that was the case and you were a soldier that had to finish out your duty, how would that change the way you fought? I'll tell you what it would do it would make you so rock solid confident. You would have such a sturdy joy. You'd almost be lighthearted in your war because you know the victory's yours. It's already been won. It's in the bag. So I can fight with the confidence that knowing my team wins. Hey, Christian, Our team wins. Our team wins. Jesus has secured for us the victory. Not only that, Colossians told us us that after he did that, he took all the rulers and the authorities, Satan and his demons, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Your sanctification is not a crapshoot. It is not just rolling the dice. Man, I, I hope this goes well. Your sanctification is a sure bet. It is a sure bet. Can I tell you, this, it's this truth that saved me from depression in my 20s. I don't know if you know that about me, but I would say most of my college years and early to mid 20s, I, I was regularly dealing with low to mid-grade depression. Uh, And for me, in my case, uh, it was definitely the depression that was linked to this idea. Does God even love me? Does he have me? I'm waking up every morning just going, I know what I did yesterday. I know what my last week looked like. I know what I didn't do last week. Is there any assurance I have that I'm yours still? It was this verse and verses like it that helped me go, I can be sure. My father, John 10 says, has his hand around me. And the son has his hand around me and they will not let me go. He caused me to start this race and he's gonna pick up my weak body and he's gonna run me over the finish line. That is the love of God for his people that he's rescued. That is the promise of God this morning for us. What a gift that should be for us. And you know what that produces? The same thing it produces in Paul. It produces joy in us. We become confident warriors as we fight the good fight of faith. So he shows us how he prays for him, that it's constant, it's thankful, it's joyful. He shows us why he's praying for them. 
because they've partnered with him in the only thing that matters in the whole universe and that he has a confidence in his praying that God is gonna carry them to the end. And then on the shoulders of all of that amazing, glorious truth, he's finally gonna tell us why he's, or what he's praying for. So what is Paul praying for the Philippians now? Verse nine and following says this. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer to God for the church at Philippi is this. God, make their love abound more and more. Give them a heart that beats for you, that beats for others. God, help them to feel deeply for the things that matter, for the gospel of Jesus. God, please do that. But wait. There's a comma, comma, with knowledge and all discernment. Did you guys just feel that? Anybody feel that? That was the feeling of Paul totally turning the tables on all you guys, right? That's what that felt like. See, because because some of you warm, fuzzy feelers in here who were so happy that I was going hard after all the brainiacs at the beginning of the sermon, you were like, get them, Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, you gotta feel something. Well, now Uncle Paul's got something to say to you. Ooh, okay. What do you gotta say, Paul? Here's what Paul's gotta say. You can't have real love for God if you don't have a knowledge of God. You wanna feel deeply for God? You wanna be overwhelmed, caught up in the spirit, all of that? You need to know who he is. You need to get in his word. Don't be talking like somehow you can just have all these warm, wonderful feelings and that's meaningful Christianity. It's not. Let me tell you something, that is shallow Christianity. That is shallow. God is saying the Christian experience is heart and its head. It's, it's a mind that thinks deeply about the things of God as it feels things deeply about God. It's both and. Love has a wife and her name is knowledge. And what God has brought together, let no man separate, right? That's what the text is saying here. Love always must come alongside knowledge. And as an aside, this would be a really great time for me to just plug something that, that this is the last week that there's signups for. And I want to make you aware of it because I think it, it would be really valuable for a lot of you. Uh, it is uh, our Bible study methods course that we're, we're going through this spring. It's happening this spring in just a few weeks, I think. Uh, the sign up, this is the last week. Maybe it starts this week, end of this week. Uh, it's... Uh, 
there's a few slots left. And essentially what it is, is it's us saying, we believe that love comes alongside knowledge. So we wanna equip you to know God's word well. We wanna teach you how to be self-feeders when you're reading the Bible. And so it's, a, I think, a seven-week course that two of well, some of our most gifted leaders in this church are gonna be walking you guys through. One track for the guys, one track for the girls. And we're gonna be learning uh, exegetically, walking through the book of Philippians while learning how to study the Bible in general. It's a really wonderful course that we've done something like this a couple semesters ago. Man, if you're going, I want to grow in love for God, then you need to grow in knowledge of God. And I would say, sign up, y'all. Like, there's a few spaces left on each uh, of the sides and it's gonna be in the lobby or you can do it online. But I would highly recommend it. This is one way that Stonegate's saying, we want to equip you. This is a really easy and I think helpful way to get equipped to, to be a person who says, yes, I want my love to abound and I want to abound with knowledge and real discernment. And you know what happens when that happens, when, we, when we get a hold of that? What happens is verse 10 and 11. Look at this. So that, so Paul has just said what he prays for them. I want your love to abound with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Real knowledge and discernment is what prevents God's people from chasing every wind of doctrine. It's a protection for you. Do you see that? It's a protection to know deeply the things of God. Because it's totally possible for you to be having warm fuzzies sitting in a Unitarian Universalist church. It's totally possible. And for you to feel like, man, this is really moving. And at the end of it, be a heretic. That's possible. God wants us to engage our minds as well as our hearts, that we're not led on by foolish emotionalism only, but that we, we do it with a shrewdness of discernment that's, that says, I can see the, the truth from the false. I can see the, the one true God from the lies about God. I can sift the wheat from the chaff. I can do that because God has given me eyes to see that in equipping me in his word. And the result is that we could stand before God one day pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And then the punchline of the whole text right here, what happens in, if, when that happens? Glory and praise to God. God looks great and glorious as we lean into that. So that's what we're gonna be after as we study through the book of Philippians together as a church. And that's what we want you to be after day after day as you're pressing into God in his word with the saints. So we pray that would happen for you this morning. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment in case in, in all of those uh, thoughts and words and reading, you, uh, you felt a particular just conviction of the Holy Spirit about something something you maybe need to deal with in your heart or your mind. Maybe, um, maybe you heard Paul's words and you felt the Spirit just saying, 
you have not been open um, to feeling deeply for me. And maybe there's some pride there that God needs to deal with in you. Let this be the morning where you confess that to God. Ask him for grace as we worship. And maybe that's not you, maybe for you, you've been really okay with just some warm feelings about him, but you, if you were really pressed, you really don't even know who he is. Who is this God? Would you ask him for grace this morning to, to give you a deep conviction to wanna press into the deeper end of the pool, to get to know our creator, our maker, our sustainer, our savior, to learn about his nature and his promises. Ask him to change your heart if, if you're not there. And God, we are just so comforted that in hearing a passage like that, we remember that you have us in the midst of our fighting. You have us in your hands and you will not let us go. God, that you are gonna carry us across the finish line. May that give your people this morning the will to fight hard for the sake of the gospel. God, convict us that you have us. Produce in us a joy because of that. We, we hold on to that promise as we remember that you hold us fast. And God, we pray that you would change us by the truth of your word. So please do that in Jesus' good name. Amen.